0: Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, JD Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms, we talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a a mental mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to
1: change the narrative? Our next guest almost became a physical therapist, but thanks to a good friend, he knew Odie could change the world. Odie noticed that he became fascinated with the idea on how human behavior could be modified simply through conversation and suggestion. He is a force of honesty. Odie specializes in Afrocentric theory, racial identity, mental health wellness, and financial behavioral issues. Fascinating. We didn't even know that was a thing. If you are a Black man or woman and want to meet up with some truth and wellness and spiritual connection, some self-actualization through mind, body, and spirit, we have your man. Welcome, Odie, and we would love for you to... Pronounce
2: your name for the audience. Okay. So my full name is Odilakachi William Hezekiah Onkwe, right? Odilakachi William Hezekiah Onkwe. And the entirety of my name means the spearheaded warrior who rests in the hands of God and is only stopped by death. So that's my name.
0: Love it. Awesome. I love your name. And I wanted to do it justice by having you pronounce it for us. So uh, first of all, thanks. thank you so much for responding to my request to come on the podcast. I really appreciate uh-huh. it. And the second thing is just so curious about so many things about you. So I'm going to try to be focused here and keep this as linear as possible so I don't bounce around too much. Tell us about your background and your family history. What do you give credit for who you are today?
2: That's an interesting question. So I don't necessarily give credit to any one person or thing. Um, I have a very good friend of mine who is a Grammy Award winning artist, Grammy Award winning rapper. One of his songs, he says, I am the thesis of her prayers. Right. And when I heard that line, I felt that that's what it is or how it is that I came to be who it is that I am. I am a thesis of multiple prayers. Right. So if we're looking at it from the perspective of who it is that I am as a person, I am the outcome of multiple people's hands in my life. Right. So I have a mother and a father. They've been married for a very long time, um, 38 years. Right. Okay. So I have a solid foundation of what a relationship or what a family is, you know, what people say is supposed to look like. There is no supposed. My mother is from the west side of Chicago. Um, She was born on the west side of Chicago to a mother and a father. One is from Pine Bluff, Arkansas, and the other one is from Kansas Kansas City, Missouri, right? My father is from Nigeria. He's uh, from the Igbo tribe, so I'm an Igbo man by blood. He was born to a father and five wives. My grandfather was polygamous, but his mother was, you know, there were some things that happened in the village that made it kind of, you know what I'm saying, difficult in that area for him. So I am the amalgamation of all of those things coming together. My background, I was born, June 8th 1993, so I am a millennial. I have not hit 30 yet, right? I am from the west side of Chicago. I was born and raised on the west side of Chicago. I stayed in one house my entire life, uh, all 18 years. And then in 2011, I graduated from Jones College Prep High School went down to Alabama State University in Montgomery, Alabama. I stayed there for four years, got my bachelor's in rehabilitation services with a concentration in addictions. That was the first time I'd ever made straight A's in my life, and it was in psychology, which led me to going to get my master's in community psychology with a focus in Afrocentric theory from Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University. And I graduated with that master's in 2017, and I've been working as a therapist since. Then I have gone quite literally almost three quarters of the way up, if not five, six of the way up of the clinical ladder. So between 2017 and 2020, I was a traveling therapist, uh, outpatient therapist, outpatient adult therapist. Then I became an associate program director. Then I was a therapist for a residential treatment facility, an adult residential treatment facility. And then I was an educational liaison for children in foster care systems. I've pretty much run the gamut in a very short period of time which leads me to where it is that I am now.
0: You know, we've shared uh, a number of similar experiences in terms of how you got to where you are. And, you know, you in a way have this, I mean, people don't think of people who are from the same race as being bicultural, but you are, you're bicultural. And so how has that influenced you in your self-exploration?
2: It's allowed me to see the similarities easier than it is for me to see the differences. And this is Mm -hmm. what I am Being bicultural, so I'm going to give an example. Mm -hmm. I did not identify my father as an immigrant until a couple of years ago. The reason being is because the codified language that exists in the United States of America associates a particular word with a particular image. We know this as people who work with the brain and work with psychological processes. Therefore, in my mind, my father was not just an immigrant. He was just African, right? The idea of an immigrant that I had in my mind was somebody of Latin descent based upon the political climate that was around at the period of time. Being bicultural allowed me to see that my father was within that same space, but because it was contextualized differently socio-politically, it was different, right? So me as in, me as the child of an immigrant, I aligned myself with children of immigrants because of the oppression of color and not necessarily recognizing that I was also a child of an
0: immigrant. Mm, that's deep. Does that make that's sense?. Deep. Yeah, wait, I'm just trying to digest it all because that's how deep it is. So what I love about what you're saying is almost as if dad didn't get the credit, you know, in terms of the language for being an immigrant. So you didn't get to totally have the experience of being an immigrant. It was just it was just your life. Mm -hmm. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. So. What's the most difficult lesson you'd say you'd learn today growing up as a black man?
2: Recognizing that I am similar and different simultaneously. This is what I mean. As a black man, as an individual, I do not feel as if, though, I contribute to the oppression of black women. But by mm-hmm. proxy, because I exist at that intersection, I still have to be mindful of those things and how it is that I approach those conversations. That was a difficult lesson for me because I, it is difficult for me to apologize for things that I have not done. And it is difficult for me to apologize for things that I have not directly contributed to. So there have been situations in which I knew that a partner of mine or a friend of mine was responding to who it is that I present as and not who it is that I am.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And for me as an individual, that's difficult for me at times because I am a Black man who's emotionally aware. And I do have difficulties processing things like that sometimes like I feel as if though you're responding to me as an entity and not me as a person.
0: So. I'm going to juxtapose this for a second because I already know people in the audience are, are thinking. Right. Mm-hmm. So how the white body responds is, well, you're doing that to me by making me responsible for the legacy of enslavement. How am I responsible if it was not done by my hands? It sort of feels like you're giving them permission to use that as a way of not taking responsibility. How do you how do you integrate that so that it makes sense?
2: I integrate that for it to make sense by not taking it personally, one. And Mm -hmm. also, two, validating validating from an ecological perspective that the emotion that they're feeling is valid. How it is that they're responding is valid. The application of the validity may be off, but how it is that they're responding is still valid. So I still have to internalize that as a Black man, this is how this person is responding from this place of recognizing this power dynamic or recognizing what this power dynamic could mean to them as an individual. As a black man, once again, that's been difficult for me because as an individual, I know that I still have to hold myself accountable for things that I cannot see. And for me, that's difficult.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I'm sure that is, I'm sure the white body is very receptive and the way that you said it doesn't let anybody off the hook, even though we're not trying to put people on the hook, it doesn't let anybody off. But it validates one's experience, which is all we ever want to do as human beings, anyway. But it's so difficult to do with the extent of marginalization and oppression on brown and black bodies. It's difficult to, you know, Resma. I always, I always defer to Resma, right? Because you know, he does an amazing job of talking about the white body's legacy of enslavement and just how damaging it is, um, the internalization of that of that legacy. And <clears throat> while I get that intellectually. I'm too busy trying to manage my own to create, you know, affirmation and sort of validation. So I, I like the way you integrated that. It just it, it keeps everybody accountable. And at the same time, it, it, it provides some empathy, you know, or compassion.
2: I didn't learn that lesson from white bodies. I learned it from black women.
0: Mm, say more.
2: As a black man, I recognize that I sit at a particular intersection where I am both oppressed and an oppressor so for black women for a lot in a lot of situations systemically i as a black man exist as a proxy of white supremacy mm. So as a black man, because you said white bodies and you kept saying white bodies, my mind kept responding white spirits, white ideologies, white concepts, mm-hmm. We're not dealing with the body. We're dealing with the concept. We're dealing with the spirit. We're dealing with the idea. And the idea can manifest in any body as long as that host is a comfortable space for the idea. The mm-hmm. idea of oppressing somebody or simultaneously being oppressed and oppressive or oppressing is something that only I feel like only men of color can understand if they allow themselves to understand it. I had to allow myself to understand it from a very young age because my mother was the person who showed me how to humanize myself and thus humanize my father. And then I recognized how much emotional labor that took out of my mother. So for me, I understood that as a Black man, I had to learn how to adopt this skill so that the woman who I decided to be with or the partners that I decided to have did not exist under the same amount of duress.
0: I love that. I love that. So I love that. I love how you explain that. It it, it really does make it so user friendly for mm-hmm. people, you know, because I'm not going to lie. There's a trigger in the idea of looking at black men as oppressors. You know, it's, it's a trigger. I want to, I want to protect my brothers and, and I don't want to think of them as being oppressive. And I always come to their defense because It is a systemic issue Mm -hmm. and it is a challenge to become educated enough, but also be open enough to receive this as a possibility. So I, so I really appreciate that. Yeah, that that's, that's helpful. Thank you. I heard
2: an interesting saying. It was, it was very interesting. I heard it on TikTok, Mm -hmm. and the man who he was talking about taking accountability for things that you perceive is not, that are not your fault or out of your control. And -hmm. what he said was if it's snowing outside and I have a house, I can't control whether or not it snows, but it's my responsibility to shovel my driveway. Mm. Right. So as a black man, do I internalize the idea that I am an oppressive being? No. Do I entertain the idea that I may have internalized things that are oppressive to black women based upon the ecological system that I find myself in? Absolutely. It's almost like the idea that W.E.B. Du Bois posed of dual consciousness. You have to understand where it is that that duality exists so that you can be mindful that the duality exists within itself.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Go ahead. Go ahead. You finish.
2: We still have to hold each other accountable. As black men, the name of the game is accountability. We still have to hold each other accountable. And it's not blame. It's brother. We exist within this space. If these women are going hard for us every day, then the very least that we can do is pick up and do just as much, Mm -hmm. if not more.
0: I love having, I love sort of pulling this apart because so many times colonization has taught us to lump people together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we use words like oppressor in the same sentence as black men, and then the white media, the white bodies, the white people get a hold of it. And yeah, they're as oppressive as. And so I, I, I have a freeze response. I have a traumatic response because it's like, no, you're not going to do that. You're not going to do that. There is a different language. And I believe that you have developed that language for it. So I, I think it's really important to flush that out.
2: Most definitely. Most definitely. It's the, it, it, as a black man, I have that same response. When we go into the idea of believe all women i want to believe women i want to protect women and i had this conversation with you know i'm saying a fellow brother of mine and he said that i was inserting myself into the conversation i'm like well yeah to a particular degree and i will still yield by saying that if in real life if a woman were to come up to me and say x y and z happen because i'm from the hood i still be a little concerned i'm like this feel like a setup but at the same time i would still try to make sure that something would occur around that space But once again, it's the same context. Believe all women, to me, based upon how it is that socialization occurs in the United States, sounds like believe all white women, because that's how it Mm. always happens. Mm. That's how it always occurs. And my man, he was like, well, even if it was a white woman, what is the probability that that person is actually being valid about what it is that they're saying? Fair point. Fair point. The probability of truth still being here or still being in the dynamic when it is presented, the probability of that being truth is still high. My hiccup exists only at my intersection. That does not mean that it exists universally. Once again, it's that duality.
0: Mm. You know, you're bringing me into this current exchange that I had with someone. I'm just so sick of people talking about Cam and Kanye. I just I'm just so sick of it right and you know the news threads right they're all about what a horrible person Kanye is and what a victim kim is and i get into a very specific type of debate with people because they immediately hear me say don't i'm don't blame the victim you're you're blaming kim you know for asking her to take some responsibility and that which is transpiring, and I, you know, I have to think about that as a therapist. And I, and that, and what you said just just brought that that thought to mind because I, I don't know that it's beneficial to anyone to see Kanye as this horrible person. Has he done a lot of questionable things? Absolutely. Um, I thought the documentary was was well done, very beneficial in understanding his journey, and at the same time. I also think there is some responsibility in that family, you know, the Kim family for being a part of the falling of this man, you know, and I am having a problem with no responsibility being taken. And now she has become the poster child for victimization. I'm having a problem with that.
2: Here's my response to that. And my my response is my response is very interesting. Right. Because do I believe that Kim Kardashian is a victim? Yes. Do I believe that she is a complete victim? I don't believe that anybody is a complete victim. I firmly believe in the idea of what is it called? It's called like omnidirectional abuse or something along those lines where it's like both parties come into the same space. I like what you're saying. Okay. Because they are are interpolating within one another's trauma, they're traumatizing one another and they don't see where one starts and the other ends, Mm -hmm. Right. Kim Kardashian thrives on relevance. Kanye West thrives on egotistical bolstering. Join, right? Kanye West also is what, and I, I wrote this in a status. Kanye West is what happens when a manic ego meets an unchecked reality, meets the ability to bring forth whatever it is that your mania is. Mm-hmm. Because he has the resource, and I asked somebody this because they said, you know, I'm uh I have I have bipolar disorder as well, and I can't always tell when I'm in a mania. I said, okay, mm-hmm. that's fair. And For the people who can tell that you're in a mania, how can you usually tell that you're in a state of mania? Because I recognize that what it is that I'm doing is impulsive. I recognize that what it is that I'm doing puts me at a place of danger. I recognize that what it is that I'm doing puts me, usually it's either financial or physical. Sure. Usually, if you are a person who has billions of dollars of access to your name, where does that financial limit hit? If I have the resources to bring whatever delusion of grandeur that I have to my disposal, is it really a delusion of grandeur? Or Mm -hmm. is it something that I have the ability to think and then create, which is the equivalence of a God in my mind? Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Right. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about this idea of victimization, I believe that Kim Kardashian is the victim of an unchecked of a person who has not developed the self-awareness to check themselves when they need to check themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. I also believe that the Kardashian family, because they utilize media and because they utilize relevance to build their business, you got to be careful with who you pay.
0: And they use black people and appropriate from black culture, and they use black men and they find black men who are in need of something. And I think that's e- equivalent to perp- to being a perpetrator themselves. Yeah. So they I, they I find, the I'm a challenge.
2: Need of validation.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I agree. So, you know, when the light shines the other way, I, I just have difficulty, which is, makes it very precarious as a therapist, because I want to see women in pain. I want to I want to validate them. And I also think we have to say things that are not always easy to say. So I appreciate this exchange. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit. Let's mm-hmm. talk about the purpose of combining mental health with financial wealth.
2: It's one of my favorite things to talk about, because very <laughs> few people know. very few people know that financial therapy is a thing. Right, Mm -hmm. and very few people recognize the relationship between money and emotions. So, I'm going to ask both of you a question What made you want to become therapists?
0: I wanted to save the world. That's an emotion, yeah. That's 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 why I'm still working to this day (laughs) because I went on
1: that motion.
2: (laughs) That's an emotion, yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Mine was not unlike JD, but. Helping people with trauma.
2: That's also an emotion. What brought me to being a therapist, honestly, was the fact that I recognized that I could speak life into people. And I recognized it in a very esoteric way. It was similar to me being a shaman or a healer. And I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that type of mysticism to what it is that I do, right? It's also an emotion. What's one of the first things that you heard about being a therapist? One of
0: the first things, um,
2: in terms of income.
0: Oh, I've never heard it. Nothing ever. (laughs) I mean, you know, it was in my own therapy and it was on a journey of, of healing, which never ends, but never, I I will say in this, the school that Susie went to and that's, which also the school uh, that I currently uh, teach a couple of classes. They talk about practice. They talk about private practice. They talk about building, you know, your business. That's, that's never been my journey. And so it's never been a part of my career just recently. In the past, probably five, 10 years, I started thinking about, okay, what does this look like when you start to think about it financially? Mine has always been an emotionally driven uh, motivation.
2: Right. Mm -hmm. See, mine was a little different. What I heard a lot of was therapists don't make a lot of money or there's a very low salary cap in this industry, things of that nature. So you have to diversify. Nine times out of 10, when people hear that, they hear that when they're already knee deep in a program. (laughs) So <laughs> right? yeah. now they have to start scrambling it creates anxiety right that's an emotion that's related to your income which is related to your your emotional well-being your subjective well-being right so if mm-hmm. we're looking at it from the context of maslow's hierarchy of needs food water sex and shelter right to a degree you need money to get all of these things so let's go back to site one on one. Right. We have a primary reinforcer and we have a secondary reinforcer. A primary reinforcer is the reinforcer that's directly associated with biological with biological functions in the body. The secondary reinforcer acts on the primary reinforcer. If the primary reinforcer is food, water and shelter, what's the secondary reinforcer?
0: Well, like you said, you got You got to get to it. <laughs> and how do but you what's get
2: to the secondary it? reinforcer? What is it? Money. Money. Therefore, when we as human beings do not have enough—not money, but tool of exchange for resource—we begin to feel as if though we are experiencing a life or death situation, because quite literally, it can become a yeah. life or death
0: situation. Yeah, desperation—desperation desperation is real. I mean, poverty and desperation is real.
2: The real Absolutely. thing. Yeah. Right? On the other side of that, we also have people who are extremely wealthy but unhappy. Statistically speaking like quite literally from a financial from a financial psychology perspective the benefits of continuing to make money taper off between 72 and 160 thousand dollars 160 thousand dollars per annum is the point where people start to feel wealthy 72 thousand dollars per annum is the point where people feel as if though they no longer have to worry about day-to-day things Mm. so between 72 thousand and 160 thousand dollars per annum that's pretty much where people's happiness point with their occupation or their wealth or their income tends to lean right anything outside of those categories or anything outside of those places on the more wealthy side you tend to have people who continue to try to keep up with the joneses for appearances which means that they're dealing with something internally that they have not resolved or on the or on the poverty side you quite literally don't have enough resources to do what you need to do it creates psychological stress mindful finance is the combination of financial literacy and psychology in order for you to understand not what you're spending your money on, but why you're spending your money on it. Right.
0: Yeah, for sure.
2: Most definitely. Most definitely. So for example, there are people who create budgets and they don't know how to adhere to the budget.
0: Right.
2: I have, you know what I'm saying? I, I got the income. I got the outcome. Like I wrote down all of my bills. I see like, why am I not adhering to this budget? What is your sleep schedule like? Mm-hmm. What is your work environment like? What was your home life like when you were younger? Did you, all use, did you all utilize a lot of things that you need money for in order to assuage pain? Did you get a lot of gifts when you were younger? Did y'all eat a lot when y'all were younger? Did y'all eat out? Did y'all eat at home? Are some of your behavioral patterns mim- mim- mimicking or attempting to mirror that comfort, utilizing money as a proxy? Retail therapy. Eating for comfort. Unnecessary spending on Amazon after scrolling for hours.
0: Okay. Go ahead.
2: Oh, you were raising your hand because you said you yeah.
0: No, I was right, you're like, yes, yes, I hear it all the time.
2: Millennials, 72% of their purchasing decisions are made based upon their online habits. Mm. The average American spends anywhere from 8 to 10 hours a day on their phone. We also know how social media impacts the way that it is that we feel about ourselves and our perception, right? Mm-hmm. That is a very quick and a very sneaky feedback loop for you to get in, for you to feel bad about yourself, and then start buying things for you to feel bad about yourself. On top of getting the meal from Grubhub, a DoorDash is going to make you feel better inside. You mm-hmm. have now spent $300
0: in a blink of an eye, and you don't know where it to- mm. Great. So, well, I, I just I want to I wanna pull it together because this is this is great. I wanna pull it together and I wanna know how who who are your clientele? How do you get them to understand this connection and to provide the service because it's nuanced, it's very nuanced.
2: That's what I'm working on now, right? Mm-hmm. So in the financial sphere, money tends to gravitate towards money. That's just what it is. That's the exactly. reason why you have so many People in the financial sphere, you know what I'm saying, attempting to fake it till they make it, leasing Mm -hmm. cars, like people in the financial sphere are usually operating under a lot of debt because they are trying to market to clients that have a lot of money, right? So how do I get clients? Quite literally, I'm in the process of doing this process within myself so that people can see that this is something that is necessary, right? Mm -hmm. I've networked with a multitude of seven and eight figure earners. And whenever I talk to them about this, they're flabbergasted. They're like, this is something that's needed. But it's marketing it because once again, you're absolutely correct. It's extremely nuanced. And it's something that has been around for years, but because it's been in the deep, deep enclave, enclaves of the ultra wealthy, nobody else sees the importance of it. It's, the sim- it's a similar thing with financial literacy. Financial literacy is not new.
1: Right. But
2: because people perceive that you have to be rich in order to be financially literate, which statistically has no significant correlation, they tend to just move away from the information. If I'm saying to you that you are a single mother of one or a single mother of two and I can help you through financial therapy, relieve some of, relieve some of the stresses that you have, because at that point, at that level, it's not even about financial literacy. It's not even about money. Mm -hmm. financial literacy and psychology is a fancy way of saying resource allocation
0: Mm. okay
2: how to properly allocate resources or how to properly seek resources so that you can offset some of the issues or some of the strain that comes with gathering resources because that's all money is
0: yeah there is something to be said about the fact that You know, communities who are oppressed and marginalized are robbed of opportunities to learn anything uh, in terms of financial stability. I mean, you know, schools, you know, are still teaching such basics that are not beneficial to communities, you know, thriving. It's like, so by the time they get to the age where you want to reach them for the service, you know, it sounds like French. You know, so the the way to help people understand, you're right, is by becoming what it is they want, in a sense. And, and having that language that doesn't sound like I need to do more. I need to do more to just be where I am. So I like the idea that you are trying to become that which you recommend and want to market. I think that is important. The other thing is, how do you... Thrive in the meantime. I mean, you know, so many, you know, therapists, mental health advocates, coaches are trying to pay bills. And you end up taking on clients who can afford to pay out of pocket, you know, because insurances are a part of the systemic, (laughs) you know, problem with borrow and begging. I mean, what they try to pay people based on the work that you provide or the education you have should be illegal. So, How do you do that? Like, what what are your thoughts around that?
2: So once again, coming back to mindful finance and coming back to financial therapy, Mm -hmm. 2000, 2021, December 18th, I totaled my car. Right. And in my mind, I was already making financial decisions when I realized that my car was not going to be able to move. I think not in terms of how much something's going to cost me. I think of how much something is going to stress me
0: out. Oh, I like that.
2: My mother says that there is no price for peace of mind. I took Mm. a $10,000 pay cut so I could sleep at night.
1: Mm.
0: I feel it. A a $10,000, not
2: not $1,000, $10,000 pay cut per annual so that I could sleep at night. Me being able to sleep at night has propelled me into spaces where I am able to thrive, where I am able to think more clearly, right? Because when I crashed my car, I was like, okay. How much is this gonna to cost to fix what's gonna be the process of totaling it out? which one is gonna be a more time consuming process okay? How much is it gonna to cost to how much is it gonna to cost to fix this? Is insurance gonna cover it okay How much is left for me to pay on this car if I cover this insurance or if I cover this, am I still gonna to have to pay for the upkeep of the car am I still gonna to have to pay for the insurance? am I still gonna to have to pay for the gas? yes. Okay, so when the insurance claims adjuster called me and said we could total it out, I said, cool. The reason being is because that's eleven thousand dollars that's gone from my credit report. Mm. That's eleven thousand dollars that's gone from my credit report that was hit by me attempting to be an entrepreneur. It's a chess move. Knowing the people that I know in the financial in the financial literacy in the financial industry. I can leverage my credit score once it gets to a particular point to get more funding to continue to create passive income so that I can continue to thrive. How I'm thriving now, very simple. I undercut insurance companies. What because I work, I work for, I still work for an agency. I don't work a nine to five, but I work for an agency that's a private practice that another one of my supervisors has. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is that whatever, whatever the copay is, I add $15 to it. Okay. Pretty much it. Right. So my sessions, my personal coaching sessions are sixty five dollars, fifty dollars and thirty five dollars, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour. My intake is 90. My intake is 90 dollars. The reason why I'm able to sit my prices this low is because my overhead is, extre- is also extremely low. Everything that I have, I'm, I'm lit- I, I live with a roommate. I work from my room. Right. I don't have to leave the house. So I'm minimizing my costs so that once again, my finances or what it is that it costs to run my business does not exceed what it is that I make from that business.
0: Yes. Yes. That is so, I'm just so happy you touched on that because so many people don't understand overhead. You know, they don't understand the fact that if you bring down your overhead, you decrease your stress and you have more of an opportunity the kids at school that I work in temporarily tease me because they call me homeless because I said, I'm a nomad. <laughs> I, I I do not want the overhead I once had in my life because I don't want to be obligated to the spaces I had to work in, in order to do that. Mm-hmm. So I relate to what you're saying so much. And the amount of stress that comes from trying to keep up with that overhead, it can be debilitating. And that's whether your overhead is, Lower than most, but still too high for you. Most definitely. That's the thing. thing.
2: And it's interesting because even when we look at it from the perspective of why do you want a brick and mortar office? Because you believe that it validates or it increases Mm. your expertise or it somehow makes you more of a valid practitioner. No, Mm -hmm. you don't need an office. You really don't. You can have a home office. You can write that home office off on your taxes. You don't have to drive back and forth to work. You don't have to keep up with all of these extra things that you're going to have to write off on your taxes anyway. No, the overhead is there because it is an extension of what somebody has taught you to believe that you need in order to succeed. That is what that is, right? Quite literally, quite literally, what I need to run my business right now is my phone, a laptop, And internet connection. That's pretty much it. Anything outside of that, like these lights, this is extra. This DSLR camera that I'm using in order to look more professional and this ring light around it, it's extra. I could very much so just get a small cube light, put it on top of the tablet that I just bought, and then just go from there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Overhead, very lean.
2: The name of the game is lean especially in an environment where I was so glad when I found out that gas prices was going up because people want to act a fool. I don't got nothing to do with that, but guess who <laughs> don't got a cop me.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. Right. It's recognizing the relationship between things. So that you can assess whether or not that relationship is conducive to the growth that you want to do. It is quite simply a motivational interviewing skill that is applied to your day to day life. You are resolving a discrepancy based on your emotional disposition and attachment to that pattern of behavior that is exacerbating that discrepancy. Motivational interviewing, DBT, CBT.
0: You know, we don't talk enough about attachment. Right. You not talk enough about the, the problematic attachments. That we have we just tend to look at it in terms of relationships we don't look at it in terms of things you know lifestyle and people so i i I love that i think it's great i want to ask you a question about the job i'm trying to get the quote right it's um they fired you for quote unquote taking a mental health day can you talk about that
2: (laughs) Woo! all right let's tell the story yes story time so okay uh, at my most recent job, I was working as an educational liaison for a company that was terribly structured. It was run by a megalomaniac and it was run by a narcissist. Every day <laughs> from 8 o'clock a.m., technically 7.45, 7.45 a.m. to 12 o'clock in the afternoon, we had meetings Ugh. every single day, including Sundays, Ugh. including Sundays. I didn't go to the meetings on Sundays because I wasn't finna do that. That's my day. That's my time. Y'all can't have it. I see y'all on Monday. Y'all can holler. Y'all can scream. Y'all can write me up. I don't give a damn. I'm not coming in here on Sunday. It's not happening. Right. So we have meetings every day about things that could quite literally be either individual phone calls, individual emails, things of that nature every single day. My job description was an educational liaison. I didn't have a written job description, but I had a job description that was given verbally. Essentially, what it is that I had to do was I had to make sure that all of the kids were in school. They were getting the needs that they needed met at the school. They were making sure that, you know, they were enrolled properly, things of that nature. So my the core of my job, like the core duties of my job were telecommunicative because of, you know, I'm saying the hybrid in the city of Philadelphia and happened between eight o'clock in the morning and one o'clock in the afternoon. Why? Because those are school hours. (laughs) So the overlap between when these meetings ended and when my job duty started usually was around the 11, 30, 12 o'clock area. Right. I work an hour from home. I'm sorry. I work an hour from the office on public transportation. Mm
1: -hmm. When
2: I crashed my car, I was consistently communicating with them like, hey, this is going on. Hey, this is happening. Hey. This is occurring. At the same time, I was having some difficulties with my now ended relationship. Right. So there were a lot of psychosocial stresses going on at the same time. As you all could probably tell, this company was not structured properly. It was not structured well. Right. There were three different places in which I could put in time off. And only one of them was the right place to put them. The system didn't always work the way that it was supposed to.
1: Right. things
2: and i'm like you know what i'm exhausted i don't care somebody's gonna tell somebody where it is that i am i put it in one of these three places y'all will see it y'all will put it together but you all will know that i've communicated this and i've done this right this was the thursday friday i wake up at 12 30 i have like six mixed i have six text messages four missed calls i'm like what is going on so I see a text message that says, don't respond to anything that has to do with child-first services until X, Y, and Z. They gonna fire me. I know they gonna fire me, right? I don't care, it's fine. So I call, I get a call from HR. So-and-so has relieved you from your position at child-first service, and I'm like, but I've been communicating, so how is it that you and HR don't know what's going on? That's a problem for me, right? I got fired for taking a mental health day because I didn't I didn't take the appropriate steps in my state of duress. Mm, No warning, no nothing. And and it's funny because the CEO thinks he's slick. He sent me an email saying you're taking liberties with your schedule that you do not have. And for him, because once again, I was an associate program director. I know what covering your ass looks like. That's exactly what that was. Right. I got fired for taking a mental health day.
0: That is crazy to me.
2: So HR calls me and they're like, well, we're, we didn't understand what was going on, things of that nature. And I said, but I was communicating with everybody what was going on. I wasn't receiving any yield in how it is to solve this problem. I was being proactive. And on top of all of these things, I didn't get a formal write-up. I didn't get a warning. I got none of these things and not from the appropriate place. So if I really wanted to be that person, I could have been that person and said, oh, because people are telling me, you have a case, you have a case, you have a case. And I'm like... I don't want to put my energy into that. Mm-hmm. I really don't. Right. So after that occurred, I took a couple of weeks. Well, the week after that, me and my ex broke up. So it was just, it was a
0: lot of stuff. Going wow. On between, That's
2: it was a lot of stuff going on between December 18th and like probably about two weeks ago. I'm just, I'm just on the other side of all this. Like just now.
0: Well, congratulations. Because the way I've been following you. You've been managing very well. So congratulations for getting through it. And I'm so glad we have you on the other side and here to talk about it. I can tell that it's been a work in progress and you're making it happen. So that's awesome. Let me ask you this. You respond to some people on social media and you don't respond to others. What is the criteria for the ones you respond to and don't and why?
2: Okay. So the first criteria is love. If you're showing me love, I'm going to show you love. Bottom line, right? I firmly believe that the social media space, especially, especially for black creators, can be extremely negative. Yes. Right. So for me, it's like, yo, if you show me love, I'm gonna show you love. You know
0: what I'm saying? Oh, oh my God, you
2: look so handsome. I appreciate you so much. Oh my god, you look, I appreciate you so much. Oh, I really appreciate what it is you talk about. Thank you, little baby. I appreciate you, right? I, I I go back and forth, or it's like, you know, King, I really appreciate what it, Hey, I appreciate you, King. Hold up. You feel what I'm saying? It's, it's love, right? That's the first criteria. The second criteria is whether or not I feel somebody has the intellectual capacities to even go back and forth with me. And I know that sounds elitist, and in a way it is, but I have very short tolerance for ignorant people. No, not ignorant people. <laughs> I have, a, I have a much larger patience for ignorant people because ignorance is simply the lack of knowledge. And because okay. knowledge continues to grow, ignorance is going to be continu- is going to continue to be persistent. I have a very short tolerance for stupid people. <laughs> and stupidity is a decision. Like if you read the definition of the word stupidity, it means to continue to behave or to make an executive decision to behave, behave as if though you are in a haze or a stupor. You are making a decision to be stupid. I don't associate with stupid people. I don't have time. Stupid uh, people have a
0: That is hilarious, Odie.
2: Like, I, I, I just don't have the time. And it's, it's like, I can usually tell when somebody is stupid when they're being, when they're being willfully obtuse, right? Or aimlessly, or aimlessly uh, obstinate. Like you are willfully misunderstanding what it is that I'm saying. You don't want to resolve it because if you resolve it, it makes your point. Quite literally, moved. Like when people want to debate with me, I cut them off at the knees. I'm not about to sit up here and debate what's with, with you in the leaves. No, I'm going to say to you that your entire argument sits mm. on a faulty premise. Now you ain't got an mm. argument because everything that's going to come from your argument is going to come from that faulty premise. And because your premise is faulty, your argument's going to be faulty. Anything that comes from this tree is not going to get ate. <laughs> like, what's crazy? Now you're you done. Now you're out here looking loud and stupid. I've had people delete their, <laughs> delete their entire accounts because of what it is that I said back to them.
0: You know what? You're you're so on fire with this because I noticed that because Black creators and activists you know, we get watched so closely. I mean, I've been, <laughs> I've been shadow banned for six months now. My platform is small. I speak to a very specific group of people about the message of mental health and social justice. Why am I being watched like that? Like, what am I doing? And I noticed that there's others, particularly those in the white savior game who do get shadow banned, but at the same time, they thrive on debating. And being argumentative. And what I've seen is that black creators and other creators from the global majority feel like they have to take on that persona to get the same exposure and traction. And it's challenging because sometimes the message gets lost. And so I, I really appreciate what you're saying.
2: And that's the reason why I don't take on that persona. I know that I'm an intellectual and I I enjoy debating. I've lost the pleasure of making people feel stupid about four months ago. It no longer, because I recognized that it was coming from an egotistical place. It wasn't mm. coming from a place of the sport of ensuring mm. that people were enlightened. It came from a space of you dare to challenge me in my intellectual superiority, and you are quite literally a peon. I will crush you. Once I recognized where that was coming from and how it is that it tied to other engagements with other people, I stopped doing it. I, I stopped that. doing it, right? Because it's... I. I I noticed that when I got ready to engage with people like that, I would feel like a knot in my stomach because I knew that it was a challenge. I perceived it as a challenge, right? Why am I sitting here with knots in my stomach over somebody who can't, who don't know the difference between your, your, and your? I'm not finna, I'm not finna keep doing this to myself. (laughs) First first of all, it's apostrophe R-E, dummy. If you wanna insult me, insult me correctly, please. Please.
1: (laughs) Please. Great title for a book. Oh, my God. That is so
0: good. That is so good. That is just that's just too good. I can't I can't even with that. I, I got nothing else to say about it. That's perfect. So you quoted someone who said this is just so profound. I agree with you, uh, who said accepting my shit is one thing. We're talking about the the, the stigma about mental health and communities, right? Particularly those from the global majority. Um, so she said, <clears throat> Accepting my shit is one thing, but doing the work to fix my shit, that's another. That's just genius. So tell me, respond to that, if you will, because I loved your response.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so first and foremost, that was from one of my sisters. So I have, I have one blood sister, but I have a very large chosen family. Like, my, my chosen family is huge. I'm talking like 20, 25 people. Like we and we we in there like swim we in there like swim well like we go back like two flats on the couch. like we we too smooth with it. You understand what I'm saying? So that was one of my sisters that I've known since 2007 Like I've known her for the better half I've known her for almost 15 years. Right. So I was in the office one day and, you know, what I'm saying she called me. She was like, brother, I'm really getting ready to go to therapy. You know what I'm saying? I want to talk to you about it because and then she said, I know that I need to like I recognize that I need to fix some shit. But actually starting to fix it is hard. And I said, sister, that's profound. Right. And I recognize the apprehension that you have because doing something in a way creates the confirmation of the anchor bias that what it is that you need to do is real. And for mm-hmm. a lot of people making something real or bringing something into the present so i'm going to get a little esoteric i do i do a lot of i do a lot of research on physics mostly quantum physics or or experimental physics right because that's pretty much where the edge of science kind of stops right, right. So in physics right now, they, what they are doing is that they're researching the fifth dimension. And essentially, the fifth dimension is the space where all of the other four dimensions interact. It's quite literally that perception of what is going on. But because we can only perceive it for a second, we know that it happens, but we can't measure it because it happens a different way every single time. We just know that it happens, right? In my mind, that's what manifestation is. Manifestation is the fifth dimension. It's us recognizing that something can happen. And we're recognizing that it occurs between these other four dimensions, but us attempting to chase and replicate it is what makes it real. The process of repeating something is what makes that process real. Science is how it is that we develop our perception of right, wrong, real, or unreal. Therefore, the fifth dimension is the place in science where science recognizes its limit between the physical world and the immaterial world. That is where a lot of us recognize our limits. The fifth dimension is where a lot of us recognize our limits and the fifth dimension is also where a lot of us experience the most strain. The reason being is because we, once again, coming back to that idea of duality, recognize that we can simultaneously think about something being done and recognize the amount of time that it would take to do it Mm. and the amount of effort that it would take in that time to do it. That is where a lot of people stall.
0: Okay, so I'm pretty sure that wasn't your response to her. As deep as it is and as much sense as that makes. <laughs> what, what flipped the switch for her?
2: What flipped the switch for her was me saying to her, like, sis, walking through that door is just as important as recognizing that the door is there. Mm-hmm.
0: That's right?
2: it. That's it. Walking through that door is just as important as recognizing that the door is there. I'm going to give another example. If you are on a street, right, you're driving, you see the traffic light, the traffic light turns red. And you continue to go through that traffic light. You've acknowledged that the traffic light was red, but you didn't do what you were supposed to do at the traffic light Mm -hmm. because you did not do what it is that you were supposed to do at the traffic light. Not only have you dramatically increased the risk of harm to yourself and others, but you also have to take accountability for not adhering to that traffic law. Mm -hmm. There was a system in place. There is an identifier. There is a process. And then there is a result.
0: That makes sense
2: most people stop at the identifier because they're afraid of the process
0: i think that's the process and it is so interesting because we talk about the process all the time and the types of work that we do and the process is everything and it's the scariest place for most people mm-hmm. so you know I, I i appreciate that bridge that you drew for her i think that's really important mm-hmm. uh just a couple of questions so where will you be in five years from now
2: where will I be five years from now? I'm 28 years old. I'll be 29 in June. 29 plus five is 34. 34 years old. I'll be in Houston, Texas, circulating at that point in time anywhere from 30, 30, 350,000 to 480,000 dollars per annual I'll have anywhere between 10 000 to 15,000 dollars at the very least. Actually, no, it's going to be higher than that. Anywhere from like 20 000 to 25,000 dollars passive that I don't have to do anything for. And continuing to thrive in my continuing to thrive in my practice, my private practice, which will be a hybrid between coaching and financial um, financial coaching, financial literacy.
0: Well, don't forget about us in this journey. I, I you know, definitely could have done two hours of this uh, with you because I, I love just love how you think what you put out there. It's so important and very much appreciate you. Let everyone know where they can find you.
2: Oh uh, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So my handles for everything is my name super long. Not my name is super long. It's my name super long. It's not super long. My name super long. It's all one word, right? <laughs> That's my handle for everything: Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. That's where you can find me, right? My website to reach me is www.blkwlt.h.com. That's Black Wealth without the vowels www.blkwlth.com, right? That's where you can find
0: what? Wait, one more thing. I, I want you to spell out my name super long because people are going to get lost on that. So i need you to spell that out.
2: <laughs> so my name super long is literally my M Y name, N A M E, super S U P E R long, L O N G.
0: Perfect. Mm-hmm. Did you want to add?
2: Oh, yeah, I was just going to say that dot uh, com is where you can find what it is that I'm doing now, which is relationship coaching, individual coaching. Um, you can find my self-paced courses. I have one course that assists people in increasing their emotional awareness. And it's really just a workbook of different types of like worksheets and things of that nature that I've gathered, plus some of my own internal narratives and how it is that I help clients deconstruct things. And it's a drip course. So it releases content every two days. So that people can actually take the time to internalize what it is that they have done, or what it is that they have done in the activities within the pathways. Um, I do lives every Sunday within that group, and it's two hundred dollars for a lifetime membership. That group is going to continue to grow as I learn things, as I do things, as I continue to you know engage. I'm setting it up similar to a. I'm setting it up similar to a classroom. Uh, a college classroom, right? So once again, that's called the group sessions. That's my group um, That's my group therapy slash, I'm sorry, not group therapy. That's my group coaching slash uh, emotional intelligence course. The other course is also the mindful finance course. The mindful finance course is my flagship course. That course is $500 and it's going to continue to increase as we add more things to it. Um, to continue to answer your question about where it is that I'm gonna be in five years. It's gonna be continuing to uh, curate that course. Um, What is planned for that? So we already have credit repair. We already have um, online banking associated with it. We already have um, people who are coming in from e-commerce network marketing just to continue to add to this space of quite literally a financial literacy and compatibility, not compatibility, financial literacy and uh, capability incubator for people who don't have the money to kind of get into higher get into higher echelons of uh, financial um, financial engagements.
0: So it's pretty clear what you're doing to change the narrative. And thanks for coming on to collaborate with us to talk about it, because I just want to give as much many people opportunity as we can to as much information as we can. So thank you so much, brother. I really appreciate it. No
2: problem. I think this has a question.
0: Oh, go
1: ahead. I just wanted to add that I put a lot in the intro, but what I didn't put in, and I, I just have to say, is that you are a true truth teller, you are a speaker, you are an entrepreneur, and you are a humorist. <laughs> so thank you.
2: No problem. No problem. Lots of stuff there. So, I try to make sure people understand that truth doesn't always have to be rugged, or truth doesn't always have to be harmful or harsh. It can be
0: funny look, as well. Look, humor is is definitely a way to get it done. I appreciate you, uh, again, just sharing so much, you know, and, and what could have gone on and on, but just so important, the messages you left. Thank you so much, Odie.
2: No problem. No problem. And thank you all for giving me the opportunity and the space to speak.
0: Yeah. Um, stay in contact. And you got my number. I have yours. Stay in contact. and um, Let us know when things are coming up because we'll have you back on to talk about it.
2: Most definitely. I'll definitely let you all know.
0: All right. Take care, bro. No
2: problem. No problem.
1: J.D. and I want to thank our fabulous producers at I Am Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to IAMmusicgroup.com and the team will hit you back.
0: Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the
1: Narrative with J.D. Fuller.